Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's word and apply his message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the second book of Samuel, chapters two through four, and now Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome today to our study of David and the Psalms. Today, we're discussing 2 Samuel chapters 2 through 4. Now, we're going to start with a bird's eye view because sometimes we're in the scripture and we don't know where we're at. So we kind of need a bird's eye view. And this is God's pedagogy. Remember this little guy? God's pedagogy is this from Catechism number 53, that the divine plan of God's revelation is realized simultaneously by deeds and words that are intrinsically bound up with each other and shed light on each other. It involves a specific divine pedagogy where God communicates himself to man gradually. And I mean over hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. This is how God does it. So if you don't take a bird's eye view, you're going to miss it. St. Irenaeus of Lyon said the same thing. He says uh, repeatedly, he speaks of this divine pedagogy that God uses. So he teaches this over time. So let's take a bird's eye view today of where we're at. Today, the theme is from Eden to Zion, from Adam to David. Okay, so if we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and if we look at Matthew's account, we'll see that the very first person Matthew puts after Jesus is Jesus Christ, the son of David. So David is super important to Jewish Matthew. Luke also has a genealogy. He's not Jewish. He's Greek, and he's more of a universalist. And so he's going to take Jesus's genealogy, son of Joseph, and take it all the way back to the son of Adam, the son of God, the first man. So today we're going from Adam to David, and we're going to take deeds and words that are intrinsically bound with one another over time and take a look at from Eden to Zion, from Adam to David. So God has covenants in salvation history. He makes covenants with specific people. We're going to look at it and everything is fulfilled in Jesus. All the covenants, that's a wedge. It just keeps getting fuller and fuller and bigger and bigger and bigger. And all of them get fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So we start with Adam, the first covenant. And Adam is the mediator of the covenant. His role is husband. And he and Eve marry. This is the primordial sacrament marriage. That's the covenant form. And the covenant sign is God gives them the Sabbath, a day of rest, a day to remember and to worship God. The second covenant is made with Noah. And you remember Noah. Noah is not just a husband. He's also a father. He has three sons. And It's a household. The covenant is for their household, and the sign God will give them is the rainbow, the covenant sign. So then we get the third covenant with Abraham. Now, Abraham is a chieftain, and you see how it's getting bigger and fuller? The covenant form is with a tribe, and the covenant sign God will give them is circumcision. You remember that. The next mediator is Moses, and God gives Moses a covenant, and Moses, his role is to be a judge, and he's a judge not over a tribe, but over a whole nation. See how it's getting bigger? The Israel, the nation, and the covenant sign he'll give them is the Passover. And then we get to David, who we're studying now, and David, his covenant role will be to be a king, and today he's crowned king of Judah. And 
the form is a kingdom and the covenant sign is the throne. This throne is very important because Messiah will come from this line. And so then we get to Jesus and Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these. So all of these have typology, all of these covenants. They are all a type of Christos, a type of Christ. But we see different things about the different ones. Jesus, is, who's the fulfillment of all the covenants. Jesus is the high priest, eternal high priest, king of kings, and a prophet. His covenant form is an eternal kingdom that will never end. And it starts here on earth. It's the universal church that he left for us, for all people, all of Abraham's children. And then the covenant sign is the Eucharist. Jesus himself lives on in us and in the Eucharist. So these are God's covenants throughout salvation history. Everything, the fullness of everything, all the fulfillment found in Jesus Christ, God's logos, God's plan from the very beginning of time. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So from Adam to David, let's look at Adam. Adam was given paradise, Eden. He fell. He was exiled from this face-to-face time talking with God. But God still blessed he and Eve in their marriage, the sign of the covenant. He told them to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. And they were exiled for their own protection in God's mercy. The next one, Noah, the Lord saw that wickedness, by Genesis chapter 6, wickedness had taken over the earth. And everything imaginable, every person just had in their heart was only evil continually. And the Lord God was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man who I have created from the face of the ground, man and beast and creeping things and birds of the air. I'm sorry I ever made them. But that was by Genesis chapter six. But Noah, one man, Noah found favor in God's eyes. One man was listening to the word of God. One man. And for that one man, that one righteous man, God will save his entire family. Does that give you hope? It gives me hope. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And St. Peter tells us when God's patience waited in the days of Noah during the building of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. One man and his whole family was saved. Because of this father's faithfulness, the entire family was saved. That gives us hope. Noah was given a new paradise. He gets to start over. It's a do-over, right? God's having a do-over from Adam to Noah, from Eden to the mountains at Ararat, where the ark landed, where the ark finally landed after 40 days and 40 nights. It's a new creation. And what does God do? He immediately blessed Noah. Noah offers sacrifice thanks to God. And God tells him twice, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Just what he said to Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Then we get Abraham. And Abraham is called out of Earl of the Chaldeans, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. And all the families on the face of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Father Abraham. All the children on the face of the earth. And God took him out in broad daylight. In Genesis 15, it was still day, and God said, look to the heavens and see the number of stars in the daylight. If you are able to number them, this is how many your descendants will be, Abraham. While Abraham, at the age of 100, and Sarah, at the age of 90, have the child of promise, was a long wait. And they named that baby Laughter. It means Isaac in Hebrew, Laughter, because Sarah had laughed. Ha! 
And when Sarah died, she was 120 years old, Sarah died and she was buried in Hebron in the land of Cana, where David is today in Hebron. David today and the men of Judah are in Hebron, and they are going to anoint David with a public anointing, making him king of Judah. Judah only, not Israel yet, but the southern part, Judah. Now, Sarah had died, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. This is in the scripture. Abraham rose up before his dead, and he said to the Hittites, I'm a stranger and a sojourner. Give me property so I can buy a place and bury the dead out of my sight. And the Hittites answered Abraham and said, Hear us, my lord. You're a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in any of the choices of our own sepulchers. None of us will withhold from you his own sepulcher to, to bury your dead, Sarah. And Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and Entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It's at the end of his field. Now, Abraham has been in this cave that belongs to Ephron. Amor knows this cave. He wants this cave. This cave is in the promised land. And he says, for the full price, I'll pay. They say, you can bury her anywhere. He said, no, no, no. For the full price, have Ephraim give this to me. With you guys present as witnesses, as a possession of a burying place. Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites of all who went in at the city gate. Now, Ephron knows, hey, this guy's rich. My land's worth something to him. He wants my cave. He wants that cave. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it in the presence of my sons, of my people. I'll give it to you. Bury your dead. And Abraham bowed down before the people of the land and said to Ephron, in the hearing of all the people, if you will hear me, give me the price of the field. What what do you want for it? Accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Abraham doesn't just want them to give him a piece of land and take it back later. Abraham wants to buy it outright. I'll pay whatever you want for this piece of land. This would be the first piece of the promised land purchased by God's people. Ephron said to Abraham, my Lord, listen to me. This piece of land is worth 400 shekels. 400 shekels of silver. This is outrageous. This is price gouging big time. But Abraham agrees. He will buy it. And he weighed out for Ephron in front of all the people 400 shekels of silver. And he buys that cave. So he he buys the cave at Machpelah, the filled with the cave, which was in it, all the trees around it, everything. And he does it in the presence of the Hittites outright. It's an astronomical amount of money, but now he owns his first piece of land in the promised land, his first parcel of land, and he's going to bury his wife Sarah there in this field. And this is Hebron, where David's at today. Now, Abraham owns this cave in Hebron now, and what Abraham really, 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 really wanted that cave. Why? Abraham knew he's getting price gouged. He knows this is an astronomical price they're asking. But to this day, that piece of land is the second holiest site for the Jews in all the Holy Land. And it's called the cave at Machpelah, right after the Temple Mount, where the true presence of God used to sit in the Ark of the Covenant on the Temple Mount. That's the holiest place. And the second holiest place is the cave. And Jewish mystical tradition says that this cave is also the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And the first time it says in the Zohar, and we heard that this was owned by Ephron the Zohar. In the Zohar, a mystical piece of literature from the Jews, it says that the first time Abraham entered into this cave, he saw Adam and Eve and a light emanating from the Garden of Eden. And to Jewish mystical tradition, this cave is also where they believe Adam and Eve are buried. 
and they have paintings of it. This painting was commissioned to to show the inside of the cave at Machpelah that Abraham saw with the light. And Machpelah Kafal means double in Hebrew, and it's a double cave because there were double burial plots. They believe Adam and Eve are there, and then Abraham and Sarah are there, Isaac and Rebekah are there, and Jacob and Leah are there. So four sets of doubles. Abraham wanted to own this cave very, very badly. Okay, so the sun was going down in Genesis 15, and a deep sleep is put onto Abram by the Lord. And you know, God makes a covenant. And the Lord said, no, for certainty that your descendants are going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be oppressed for 400 years. But you are going to die in peace with your fathers. You're going to be a buried at a ripe old age, Abraham, but I still have some work to do to take care of the iniquities of the Amorites. Abraham did die at age 175. He was buried in that cave that he bought. He's buried right next to Sarah. And laughter, their son Isaac, will give his blessing to the second-born twin, Jacob, Isaac, and Rebekah eventually die, and they're buried in that cave at Hebron with Abraham and Sarah. And then Jacob, who had stolen the blessing from Isaac and taken it from his twin brother Esau, he goes on to father 12 tribes with four wives, and his first wife Leah and Jacob are also buried in that cave, the tomb at Machpelah. And then famine did hit the Holy Land, and Jacob's family had to go to Egypt for grain, or they were going to die, and they reconnect with their brother Joseph, remember? And that's, they're in Egypt. They're all in Egypt. But a new king arose, one over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Time had passed. And he said to the people, behold, these people of Israel are getting too many and mighty for us. Let's deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and war befall us. If they join our enemies and fight against us, they'll escape. And so it's true that just what Abraham was told in Genesis 15, Exodus 12 confirms that the people of Israel dwelt in Egypt for 430 years. Midwives were ordered to drown the Hebrew males three and under. And that's when we come to Moses, the next covenant mediator. Moses' mother saw that he was a goodly child and she hit him for three months, and then she put him in a basket with the pitch and, and sent him down the Nile River, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, who said, oh, look, a Hebrew child. She must have seen his circumcision, and she adopts this baby, and Moshe, she draws him from the water, and he gets to learn Hebrew. He, know, he already knows Hebrew. He gets to learn all the Egyptian schooling from living in Pharaoh's household. Now, in the course of those many days, the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel were groaning under their bondage. They become slaves. They're enslaved by Pharaoh and they're made to work. And their groaning is heard by God. And God remembers his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel and he knew their condition. And he sends a deliverer, Moshe, who was pulled out of the water. Moses is living now in Midian, but he sees a burning bush in the distance, a bush that will not be consumed by fire. And he leads after 10 plagues from the Lord and that stone-hearted heart of Pharaoh, Moshe will be the deliverer, the one to lead the Israelites from bondage. Pharaoh will change his mind and go after him, but Moses will part the Red Sea with the help of the Lord, and Moses saves the people. Pharaoh and his charioteers drown at the bottom of the Red Sea. They reach Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. They're going to marry God 
and the people are consecrated, washing themselves for three days. And before the Lord even gives them the word, the people say, all that the Lord has said we will do. They agree to the word of the Lord before they have even heard it. Now, some of you are bothered by all the battle scenes we're seeing and all the killing and all the bloodshed. And you say, why does a loving God do this? Well, ever since the fall, there's always been division among brothers. And what God told them at Sinai, what God told the people, it didn't have to be like this. Because God told them in Exodus 23, right after he marries them, he said, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you on your way. You're going into the Holy Land. And it doesn't mean the Holy Land was empty. This is a place of milk and honey and grapes and wine and figs and pomegranate. I mean, a lot of people live there. It's a fantastic place. And he says, I'm going to put an angel before you to guard you. And bring you to the place I have prepared. Give heed to the angel. Hearken to his voice. Don't rebel against him because he will not pardon your transgression for my name is in him. But if you hearken to his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and I will be an adversary to your adversaries. So God's just telling them, if you listen to me, if you trust me, if you obey me, if you do what I say, I gotcha. When my angel goes before you and brings you into the land, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, I'll blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods or serve them, nor do according to their words, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and I will bless you with bread and water. I will take your sickness away from the midst of you. None shall cast her young or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. Just trust me. Just do what I say. I will send my terror before you. I will throw into confusion the people against who you will come. I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you, and I will send out hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. God even had a plan for that. Little by little, I'll drive them out before you until you are increased and you possess the land. So God had a plan. I'm going to deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You will make no covenant with their gods. God was really big on that. If you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. That's his number one command. I am the Lord thy God. Thou will not have false gods before me. So that's all they had to do. And now they have Moses. Now they have Moses leading the charge. So from Adam to Moses, from Eden to a new Eden, the promised land, a new paradise, a new promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So they need to have this new covenant. They need to have blood and share a meal. That's always in the ancient Middle East, the way to have a covenant, blood and share a meal. Moses splashes them with blood. Remember that in Exodus 24. And Moses and some of the elders go up and they saw God. And there under his feet was a pavement of sapphire stones, the very heaven of clearness. And God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and they ate and drank with Almighty God. People forget this. In in Exodus 24, they shared a meal with God. So it's a blood covenant and a shared meal. Moses decides to go on up a little further. God will talk with him for 40 days and 40 nights. God will give him the complete law. And in the meantime, the people are getting bored. Where is he? It's taking too long. Hey, I got an idea. We got all this gold from Egypt because they sent us out with all these possessions. Let's give them to Aaron and Aaron puts them all in a pod and he makes a golden calf. God's number one thing not to do. 
and they have crafted a golden calf because it's taking too long. And Moses hears the revelry in the camp, and God has just written the tablets of his law with his finger. And the Lord hears it first and says to Moses, Moses, go down for your people, Moses, your people who you, who does that sound like? That sounds like Adam, who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf. They have worshipped it. They have sacrificed to it. They said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. And God's the one who did it. God is burning with anger. The Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. And therefore, let me alone that my wrath can burn hot against them, that I might consume them. But you, Moses, of you I will make a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord. He begged the Lord. He said, O Lord, why does thy wrath burn so hot against thy people, whom you have brought them out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent, he bring them forth just to slay them in the mountains or to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from thy fierce wrath, O Lord, and repent of this evil against thy people. Moses is begging God to relent. And then Moses brings up the covenant. God, remember, you're always true to your word and remember what you said. Remember Abraham and Isaac and Israel, thy servants, to whom thou didst swear by your own self. And you did say, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven of this land. And I have promised to give your descendants that they will inherit forever. So Moses holds God true to his promise. He intercedes on behalf of the people. The Lord did repent of the evil which he thought about doing to his own people. And like Noah and like Moses, because of one holy man, Moses, interceding on behalf of the people, God relents and saves the whole human family. Because of one man's righteousness. See how important a righteous man is to the Lord? The potential of one righteous man or one righteous woman. Like Noah, saving his family of eight, Moses is saving a nation of many thousands. The potential of one righteous man. This is a type of Jesus. The potential of one righteous man to save Moses is going to give up FaceTime with God. He's been a friend of God. The scriptures say he's the meekest man on the face of the earth. He's a friend of God. They talk face to face. He's giving that all up. He takes the commandments that God had written with his own finger and he goes down. But the Lord tells him, Moses, you're going to give up FaceTime with me. You won't see my face anymore. You're going to have to hide in the cleft of the rock. And if I come by, you're going to have to not look. Moses is willing to give that up on behalf of the stick-necked, grumbling people. And as soon as he came near the camp, Moses, he's coming down now. He sees the calf. He hears the dancing. Moses' anger burned hot. He threw down the tablets out of his hands. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. And he took that golden calf, which the people had made. He burned it in the fire. He ground it into powder. He scattered it in the water. And he made the people drink it. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose and Aaron, his brother, had let them break loose and bring shame Among them, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to Moses. Moses is a Levite, so is Aaron, his brother. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put every man a sword on his side, go to and from, from gate to gate in the camp, and slay every man and brother, and every man and his companion, and every man and his neighbor who does not want to be with us. You're either for us or against us. If you're not going to be with us, kill them. And the sons of Levi, according to the word of Moses, killed 3,000 of their own brethren that day. 
And Moses said, today, Levites, today you have ordained yourself in the service of the Lord, each one of you, cost of his own son and brother, that he may bestow a blessing upon you this day. And it is that day that they become the Levitical priesthood. Now, is that a good start to your priesthood? Do you remember these guys? Levi did not get the blessing from Jacob on the deathbed. Do you remember that Simeon and Levi, the sons of Jacob, had gone into Shechem and killed every single person to avenge the rape of their daughter, of their sister Dinah? Do you remember that? And when Jacob died, I always look back to Genesis 49. What did he say to Levi and Simeon? They should, Reuben, number one son, should have had the blessing. He didn't get it. Simeon should have had it. He didn't get it. Levi should have had it. He didn't get it. Why? Because Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence with their swords. What did they just done? Slaughtered 3,000 of their own brethren at the command of Moses. Oh, my soul, come not to their counsel. Oh, my spirit, be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they slay men. In their anger, they slay men. That's bloodthirsty killing in cold blood. In their anger, they slay men. And in their wantonness, they hamstring oxen. Cursed be their anger. It's fierce. Cursed for their wrath. It's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And the Levites will be scattered all over the country. The Levites from the tribe Levi became the priestly order for the sons of Jacob. Who gets the blessing? Son number four, Jacob blesses Judah. Son number four, from which David comes. From Judah will come the scepter and the king priest. But for now, the Levites are the priestly order. They're a temporary priesthood. Hebrews makes that very clear. Today, there is currently no branch of Judaism that regards Levitical status as conferable by a matrilineal descent. It is neither conferable patrilineally with a Jewish mother in the traditional manner, or it does not exist and is not conferred at all. Are there Levitical priests still practicing? No, there's no temple. There are no Levitical priests. It was a temporary priesthood. David from Judah is crowned a priest and a king, not from Levi, but from Judah, not in the order of a Levitical priest, but in the order of Melchizedek, which David will write about in Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever, David, in the order of Melchizedek. So the Levitical priests were a temporary priesthood. Doesn't mean that we don't need a priesthood anymore. Certainly not. You have to read scripture closer. Go back to Genesis 14. Go back to Psalm 110. God always had in his mind's eye the Melchizedekian priesthood, of which Catholic priests are ordained. So the priests are to maintain this tabernacle out in the desert. And these are Levitical priests, sons of Levi. And they do a good job. The most prized possession they have is the Ark of the Covenant, because that is where the true presence of God is on the face of the earth. This is what God has substituted. This is what will go with you now, Moses. And, and they had to carry it just right, or, or they'd be struck dead. We'll go through that. But, but the person who made this ark, Moses is up there getting the whole floor plan from God, and Moses comes back down, and this kid, Bezalel, he's 13 years old. He's from the house of Judah. He's the kid that the Lord wants to make the Ark of the Covenant. And I read in a Jewish commentary, he also made the candlesticks in the, in the tabernacle with the seven. And Moses was telling him how the Lord wanted it done. And Moses was kind of, couldn't quite. And Bezalel's like, I got it, I got it. I know, I know exactly what. So Bezalel means in the shadow of the Lord. And he had this phenomenal gift of wisdom. That was part one of the second book of Samuel, chapters two through four on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.